I'm used to doing all of my meetings at shows, most of my meetings at shows, and generally having very little to do during the week uh, uh, because I'm planning to go to a convention that weekend. So I get a lot of writing done or deep thinking done, have hours to just uh, like mull around and like take a walk out in my neighborhood. But now my days are full of meetings. And every day I go out to my wife and I'm like, this is what you, how you live? You just live like meetings constantly. Like, how do people do this? Like, I don't understand. And uh, she's like, you finally understand my uh, like, this is how most people live. They're just I'm like, I, I don't know. It's, it's been very that part has been hardest for me to adjust that every day now, instead of having a, a clean day where I have nothing to do except get my writing done. Uh, I now have half a dozen meetings which are much more tiring than I would have thought they would be just like sitting and talking. Ironic since you also run podcasts, but yes. That is the weirdest part about podcasts though, isn't it? Like a few have more than, if I have more than one podcast record on a day, it is absolutely draining. It's And I'm like, I didn't do anything except sit in my computer and talk. But there's something about it just like it drains the life out of me. Oh, it does. It's very, I mean, it's very exhausting because, I mean, you have to pay attention, keep engaged, continually think of the next question. I mean, there's a, there's a lot of sort of very live and in the moment effort to keep a conversation feeling natural. Yeah. And you're always doing, unnatural. you're always, yeah, you're always like planning the next question while you're thinking. It's just, it's a lot of deep focus that you have to give that you don't necessarily have to give other conversations, but I feel like, and it's different when you're the guest or the host, because as the host, I, I want to keep the conversation going and I'm very worried about dead space. And as the guest, I'm, I'm much more worried about like giving a lively performance and entertaining and educating and like being an entertainer for the people. So I, uh, they're two very different modes. And uh, I haven't done a lot of guesting on shows until this year because I hadn't done the I, I, my podcast went on hiatus from 2017 to 2019. So about almost exactly two years it went on hiatus. So I wasn't doing a lot during that time for uh, I would guess on maybe three or four like uh, a year, maybe 10 a year at most. And I think this month alone, I've had like 20 or 30 guest appearances by itself. So it's all, but it's a lot different thought process because you're coming in, you're like a lot of the the hosts are like, okay, what are you going to talk about? And like, you have to really like think and plan it out and make sure that you're giving, uh, I used to work in as an assistant and they used to say, uh, you have to give good phone, which is like when someone calls, you have to be polite and entertaining and fun and like lively and, uh, and, uh, and comforting. And I feel like I think about that a lot when I'm doing guest appearances now. Relax. It's fine. This is just a conversation. I'm not a journalist. I have no preconceived sort of a plan here. What All that I'm trying to do is trying to reach out to other creative people and just try and get their input on trying to 
help the various creative people in the world, myself being one, and of course the listeners being the others, is that to try and help us all do better, um, you know, make more money, be so successful, find happiness, whatever kind of term you want for it. And I found all of you, you have a, you have a couple different things going on. Like I even was re- reading through all of your different stuff. You are a published author. You are also a publisher of graphic novels and comics. And then you have, and then you have your courses that you run online. You have your podcast. You have many side hustles. I do well. Uh, I so the main thing that I do is I'm a USA Today best-selling author. So when I have to define myself, I usually call myself an author first, a publisher second, an editor third, and then a speaker fourth. But the main thing that I do is I run a company called Wannabe Press, which publishes uh, my books and comics, as well as uh, some other books. Generally, unless it's anthologies, it's mostly all my work at this point. I'm trying to uh, work some things through the pipeline to get uh, some other people's work done, but it takes a long time to get a project complete, especially in comics. So it's been slow going, but I do run that publishing company. And through that publishing company, I do about 20 or 30 appearances a year around the country, speaking engagements, signing events, conventions. And uh, as I've been writing it for five years now, people have been asking me a whole lot of questions about how to become a more successful creator, how to write better books, how to publish stuff, how to make more money, uh, all of those things. And uh, so in 2000 18, I spun off Wannabe Press's educational arm into a company called The Complete Creative, which sort of a, a website, blog, podcast training ground for teaching creatives how to make the best work of their life and share it with the world. And uh, that started originally as my, uh, the first incarnation of my podcast was called The Business of Art, which I kind of started on a lark a little bit. I started it because uh, I wanted to interview all sorts of good creators and get their best secrets and then steal them and use them myself, basically. As we all do, uh, yes. Yes, exactly. And I realized that no one would sit down and just let me pick their brain for an hour. But for some reason, if I said the same thing, except I just said, would you like to be on my podcast? The no's would suddenly become yeses. And so uh, I ran that for about two years and Uh, The first product we put out was a book called How to Build Your Creative Career, which was built on all of the best questions I had been asked from creators, uh, from, uh, from the podcast, from my own experience growing a business. And that was sort of our first product that we uh that that we made and the the sort of uh, impetus for starting the complete creative because once we did the business of art that was sort of like the end of the business of art was releasing that book and then uh, i started rebuilding and retooling the complete creative to be kind of a, a more expansive experience because the business of art was very much about selling like how do you sell work and I learned over the years that the selling part is the least important part of the of the whole process. Really, it's all about mindset. And I would have punched myself in the face for saying this five years ago, because I always used to like roll my eyes when people would talk about mindset and like that it was all about like resilience and just trying and just and coming back again and again and again. But I really did learn that uh, it's not all about sales. It's 
it's a part, it's, it's a large part about creativity. It's a large part about mindset. And so the new complete creative is set up in three distinct areas. Uh, one is mindset, one is creativity, and one is sales and marketing. So uh, I, and, and I really do think that those are the three pieces that make a, uh, a complete creative career and a complete creative human. I love them philosophically, but the, my issue with that, that kind of thought on, on a different note is, of course, that none of those things will pay the bills. Well, the sales will pay the bills. But my thing is, is that uh, I'm, I'm 46 years old, and I was taught in school certain techniques and certain ideas, and th- basically I was taught by people who were already 50 and 60 years old. So like I was being taught very old techniques of trying to create a business and then and and generate sales and all this. And the bottom line is is everything has changed d- dramatically in the past. 15, 20 years, the methods, the ways to do it. You're like, I've noticed that you do a lot of Kickstarters and things like this. Like these are things that would never have been talked about when I was in school and when I was learning stuff. So the, the evolution of the activities that are needed to do. So being great on social media, being able to create a good Kickstarter, being able to, you know, build all these different platforms and techniques to get your, your voice out there and your, your object or your thing that you sell out to the public, you even conventions, conventions weren't even that big 20, 25 years ago. Yes. But uh, I would say that if you were even taught anything about sales and marketing in your uh, in your school training, you were way ahead of everybody else because most people I talk to that have an arts education uh, are taught none of the business part of it. Like maybe they have one class. Yes, I, usually, I was being generous. I was being generous. Yeah, yeah ninety. So the one of the driving forces for me doing this is actually that like. They're getting a little bit better with entrepreneur trainings now, but for years, there was nothing. And I've been banging this drum since 2010 and probably before then. Really, I think I gave my first lecture in either 2010 or 2011. And uh, the difference is very significant between then and now as for how much sort of sales and marketing training people get in arts programs. But now, but even now, it's it's negligible uh, what they actually get. I am a professor, and so I'm part of that academic structure. And I, every year, I pitch a, a, you know, professional practices, business of the arts, things like this. And every year, they always say that there's no space in the curriculum for it. And so, like, I continually am shut down on trying to create more of these kinds of programs. But there, but even within that, what I'm trying to get to is that it's the process of doing it, the act of doing it in the these contemporary times is so um, fluid and it changes so dramatically like t- five years ago you could have done YouTube and made a lot a really large sum of money or, or now like five years ago you could have been an influencer on Instagram but all of these things are sort of getting so watered down that it's becoming exponentially more difficult to find the the most appropriate avenue to really get your work out and get yourself whatever version of success you're looking for. Absolutely, that's true. So let's break it down into its simplest form because I think that the worst advice that any entrepreneur can get is you have to be on every platform and you have to be working all of the time. I try to work a eight hour day across 12 hours. So I try to 
get up at six, work till about two, take from two to five or six off, and then do a couple of hours afterwards uh, of like uh, of, of admin work. Uh, so uh, I do work a lot of uh, stretched out hours, but I, I, I try to do to sort of Ben Franklin myself and like take time off in the middle of the day to take a nap or read a book or go on a, well, used to go on a long walk or something like that. So I don't believe you have to be on every platform. What I do believe is you have to be on one platform at least and dominate that platform. So I am on three, uh, really. And I think that's a good number uh, generally for most creative people. I'm on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Uh, the reason that people, I think, say to be on every platform or try it on is because as more people join a platform, it becomes harder and harder to be the one to break out. I think of uh, DJ Khalid on Snapchat, like he was at the forefront of Snapchat. Um, unfortunately, people have moved on from Snapchat to TikTok or whatever. And so I'm not quite sure how relevant Snapchat is now, but I know it's considerably less relevant than it was a couple of years ago when, it, when you don't everyone mind me was asking. talking about it. Yeah, if you don't mind me asking, how old are you? 37. Oh my gosh, you're younger than me. Okay, yeah. Because I, I feel quite out of touch with all of these things. I mean, it's hard enough for me to like, I was, you know, I was raised in an era and a time of like stoicism and like you don't share your private life with public. And like now it really, the industry is really all about sharing your private life. Like the what the, what I find is, is that on social media, while seeing, let's say like, great images from your like i'm looking at in the background of your thing of your some of your comics like well seeing some beautiful images and stuff like that is all great what people seem to really want on on these social media platforms is to get to know you as a person and they want to see the sort of what we call like behind the scenes or real life situations as much maybe even more than just see a portfolio of your best work Oh, this is a this is a great point because I actually disagree with that uh, uh, quite a bit. Uh, okay. I think that people want to get a curated sort of experience of things that they like. They do want to get to know you. Don't get me wrong. I, I spend a lot of time like giving my own personal advice out to people and sharing my own personal journey, but. If you go to my Facebook page, my not my personal page, but my uh, USA Today bestselling author Russell Nolte page, you'll actually see no nothing personal about me at all on that page. What you'll see is a curated selection of memes and articles and things and and experiences that I think the perfect person to read my books uh, will uh, will enjoy. So Instagram is a little bit more personal, which is why I very rarely use it. Uh, Twitter, I'm not very good at Twitter, but I am great at Facebook. And that is the number one thing that I can say is like, you have to pick a platform and dominate that platform. Like learn every trick, learn every technique, and, and, and pick one, whether it's Pinterest or, or, uh, or Instagram or Twitter or Facebook that like you're comfortable using on a regular basis. And so what you will see if you go to my Facebook page is I write books about mythology and monsters basically are like my two things. So I have a, a Lovecraft mythology anthology that I curate called uh, uh, Cthulhu is Hard to Spell. Uh, I have a dark fantasy mythology book called Ichabod Jones Monster Hunter. I have uh, another one called uh, The God's Verse Chronicles. So a lot of my stuff is like mythology and monsters. And uh, when I started doing this, I realized that my perfect avatar of a reader is sort of 
gothy girls who grew up to get like regular jobs, people who like like dark stuff. So I post a lot of like best graveyards to visit in the UK or like best Edgar Allan Poe themed bars around the country or like memes about death and grief and loss and like funny things about mythology and fairy tales and and like beautiful imagery of like reimagined Disney princesses and stuff like that. So I think people get a, a, a curate, an idea of who I am and what my likes are from what I curate for them. But I'm very rarely going through and talking specifically about myself. Sometimes I will talk about my projects or why a project is important to me, but you'll very rarely see a post about me. And that is partially because my wife does not like me talking about her. And most of my information is about like our us together. Uh-huh. Um, so I, I, uh, I used to be a lot more open about that and she really didn't like it. So I pulled back quite a bit on my email list though is a little bit different. So if you've done a, uh, if, if you've done the hard work of finding me and joining my email list, I do get quite a bit more personal on my emails, uh, but still not a ton personal. Like, I don't think you could point out where I live probably, or like, I think I, I you could point out that I have a dog, a couple dogs and a wife, but I don't think you have to be as personal as people as as people say because it's not about you. It's about them. It's about the people that you're curating for and yes, they want to know about you, but they also just want to forget the world for a little while. Yeah, I don't get me wrong. I'm absolutely atrocious at all social media. Um, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm. I can cur- curate a beautiful selection portfolio of my work, but I'm not very good at sort of sharing of myself publicly easily. But that's part of why I'm a visual artist. Like I feel like I share of myself through my art, and so like the idea of then also having to like open myself up and be vulnerable and be. Uh, uh, potentially, uh, well, vulnerable uh, through social media that would be there forever. You know that the, the, that's one of the things that also sort of intimidates slash scares me about social media is like anything you say basically is etched in stone forever, and you have to stand by everything you ever do, and that can be sort of daunting. Yeah. So th- there's three ways to build a brand. So you can build the personal brand. That's probably the most, the easiest way to build a brand and the quickest way, but it's also got the, the, the lowest ceiling. So the second way to build a brand is to build it around a product, you know, like Harry Potter or Rice Krispies or something like that. The third way is to build it around a company. So Wannabe Press being a brand or Ford being a brand or, and that's where your main focus of brand building is. So if you take out the personal brand, you can curate on your personal Facebook feeds or on your Facebook feed, uh, other artists that you that that you love and are inspired by, other articles that you're inspired by. Pinterest is really good for creating mood boards, and I create mood boards for all of my projects, and I share a lot of I share them. I, I create them on Pinterest. I'm hoping that the right people will then like find that those those cool boards that I curate. But I've evolved my ideas of what social media should be over the past 
few years. And I think that you don't have to give of yourself any more than you want to give. What you do have to give, what what really uh, uh, helps break you out is to to become a curator, to become a uh, an expert curator of what your audience wants. And the thing that most people get wrong, almost everybody gets wrong, is that they have no idea what their audience wants because they have no idea who their audience is. And so the minute that you get a good sense of who your audience is, curation becomes very easy because you just have to think of them when you are looking for stuff online to share with them. So stripping it all down, uh, to go back to what we were talking about before, is stripping it all down, like I don't think it matters about social media platforms. I don't think it matters about any of that stuff because business is, is two things. It is customer and product. And uh, most people have no idea who their customer is. They yeah, have, no, have idea no idea what that customer wants. Yep. So those two questions are sort of the the basis for my most popular course, Build a Rabid Fan Base, which is how to find the perfect human, make something that you know they will love, and then scale that into inf infinitum. And once you have the audience and the product and the process for turning a random person into a rabid fan, then you can scale anywhere you can then it's just like okay i know my fans are like aged up goth girls like where do they hang out they hang out on pinterest they hang out on facebook they hang out on instagram so like i should be have a presence on those three platforms and more importantly comic book stores and at conventions right exactly so those are the places that i need to be so so my my world is not about like being on social media platforms. It's about finding the right human to hear the message that I have and really pulling them into my mailing list where um, I have the best chance to convert into sales. Because this is another thing, like the problem with social media is it's built around virality of clicks and, and engagement. Unfortunately, the, the posts that get the best conversions are never the per ones that get the best engagement. And the people who are most likely to convert are not ones who are often engaging on your social media feed. So you- Wait, slow down for a second. You, uh, conversions and, and all that. Try Define this a little bit for me, just for right, everybody so, that's listening. Uh, uh, engagement would be liking or commenting on a post. Okay. So, uh, or- or I guess re reacting at this point, because it's not just liking. Yes, they have the sad now. Converting would be making a sale or joining your mailing list or like some action that you want them to take. So engagement is good, but people that engage are not usually going to then click on whatever you're posting and buy. The people that are there to buy are not there to engage. So people usually have one action. And and when something takes you away from the platform, so uh, let's say you click on a link that brings you to an Amazon sales page. Well, you're now no longer on Facebook. So you're not actually like, you're not going to engage. You're not there. You're not going to like it. You're just going to go to the site because that's the action you're trying to take. You know, people are down on mailing lists, but it is still the number one conversion platform. People that get things in their emails will go buy. 
people, they may not respond back or reply back or even read your dang emails. But like when it's time to buy something, that's where emails are phenomenal because you will get, I mean, I always, I get thousands, tens of thousands of dollars of email conversions every year just from sending a simple email. So uh, social media platforms are, are built for engagement. And if you want to have conversion, then you have to pay for it. So that is how they're all set up. Uh, they don't want a like link to Kickstarter or Amazon to be seen by a lot of people because then there would be no reason for them to, to sell you ads, which is how they are making their money. That's interesting. Yeah, I have this pet peeve about the algorithms that rule our lives these days. I mean, in the old days, you know, you could you could literally just go up and meet somebody and be like, "Hey, you want to buy my thing?" and they they'd buy it from you or you could be a salesperson in a store and you could literally sort of convince them to buy something. But these days, most, you know, sales are are of like of creative, small run, unique things like we all make uh, are more uh, online and online is driven by these algorithms. So it doesn't matter. Social media, websites, Google, whatever I'm talking about, the algorithms, you can't, can't really keep up with how much they change and they, they adjust. And like, as soon as you get the, like all of your search engine stuff, right, then they're going to change the search engine optimization stuff. And then as soon as you start to learn how Facebook ads work, then they're going to change the, what the, they, how their, their algorithms work. And it's very difficult to keep up with that technology. At least it is for me. So I don't keep up with the technology, really. So I don't have any experience like searching all of these things. I can tell you that uh, my strategy, we just raised $31,000 for our last Kickstarter. The one before that raised $9,900. I make about $60,000 a year from our uh, complete creative site, which... I use no ads for at all. It's, it's all organic and it's all through mailing lists. So I think that people worry about things that don't matter quite a bit. Uh, they, yes, they don't, I do. They don't worry about the things that do matter, which is how can I give my audience an incredible experience that they will love that they, that they can't get anywhere else and that and, and, and how can I be of value and of service to those people so that they will continue to buy from me? And they think a lot about SEO and Facebook ads and algorithms changing, but like they have no idea who they're actually trying to reach. So like those questions don't matter. Like they, the, what matters is like what, what, what the audience, who is your audience? What do they want? And how can I get it to them? Okay, that's a great question. So, if I so I'm just thinking of all the listeners, but also quite honestly, I'm being selfish and thinking about myself. But like, so how can you even figure out from like from zero? Let's say you just created a a, a product, whether it's a book or a piece of a fine art, a piece of music, whatever it is, you just produce something. How do you even figure out who your market is? All right. Well, uh, first things first, uh, you this should probably have- This is so much have... fun, by the way. I feel like I'm like in class and just asking the teacher one-on-one -on -one questions. It's fabulous. I love it. This is my favorite part about podcasts. But the, the first thing that I would say is uh, you should at least have an idea of your audience before you are building something, but you've now built it. So like, let's just go with the fact that you built it. Um, what, I would, uh, what I would say is you need to take it out into the world 
and uh, see who responds to it the best. So you probably have an idea of like, let's take it a book, like the genre of the book. Um, I do a lot of fantasy books, so I'll say you write fantasy books. So there are there are tons of authors in the fantasy book genre. So you would go and you would say, who is the number one author in this genre, right? Either right now or um, or, or uh, in the past historically, and you can find that by going to uh, just typing in top one hundred Amazon fantasy, and it will show you who is the number one fantasy author right now, uh, who are the top hundred fantasy authors right now. And then uh, you can also use a site called Google Trends. Go to Google Trends and you can type in different authors and see who is trending now. Um, it'll literally show, you can compare up to five different words and it will show you uh, the trend lines over the past year, uh, month, day. The one I like most is Facebook Audience Insights. So uh, if you have a business.facebook.com account, you have access, even without running any ads, to a thing called Facebook Audience Insights. And you can type in something like J.K. Rowling, and it will show you all of the demographic information about J.K. Rowling's fan base. So it will tell you how many of them are men, how many of them are women, what ages they are, they tend to be, what gender they tend to be, uh, what uh, whether they are college educated or not college educated. And that will give you at least a sense of who you're writing for, especially if you can do this to 10 or 15 different authors and get a sort of sense, you at least have a demographic sense of who they, of who they are. But more importantly, you will probably be able to tell who likes your books or who tends to like your books just from your own Facebook or Twitter or Instagram feed. I mean, we all have some friends at some level or family members that uh, we engage with on a semi-regular basis. And you can probably pick just thinking about it, uh, which ones of them will enjoy your work. Now, I recommend not, uh, not picking your mother or your best friend or your wife who has an affinity probably for liking all of the things that you do. Correct, yes. You probably have a second or third tier friend, uh, someone you went to high school with who you still talk to sometimes, or uh, X, Y, and Z. There's probably a few people you can just think of uh, that off the top of your head who would enjoy this book based on the things they post on social media and what you know about them. And given that you probably have that, uh, I would then reach out to them and say, hey, I, I wrote this book. Um, I think you specifically would like it. I'll give you a free copy. I just want to know your thoughts and to see like if, I, if I'm right about like this. And if they read it and they do like it, then you can say, awesome. So uh, I have about a thousand questions for you about who you are, what you like, what your favorite stuff is. And you start c constructing a, uh, an avatar of that human based on the data that you found on Google Trends and Facebook Audience Insights. And you, you amalgamate who you think a, uh, a, your, your perfect audience member is. We have a mascot, uh, Melissa the Wannabe on a, for Wannabe Press. And really for the complete creative too, she sort of represents the avatar of everything that makes a good wannabe. 
They're rebellious and creative and artistic. They're no nonsense. They're practical. They're they're into like doing conventions and like uh, and and clubs, but not like club clubs. I mean, like underground sort of rock concerts and stuff like that. And they just give like a middle finger basically to authority and they just want to live their own live their own way. Similarly, that's a similar construct for the complete creative. And it it's not I, I don't like dealing with ages necessarily because um, or genders even. But like you have sort of an ideal sort of personality traits that a three to five that a person who will like your work wants because you're a visual artist that would include you know other influences other visual artists who like kind of are like yours you can see that our books are very influenced by invader zim and our mascot melissa is also influenced by invader zim because that's a very important piece of work uh, jarnan vasquez's work is very important to the people in my audience who grew up reading johnny the homicidal maniac and then invader zim and and so uh, all of that sort of starts drawing into an audience type. And then when you when you start selling the book, you have an even more audience type because you actually have data on who is, especially if you use something like Kickstarter or you sell at shows, you actually have the person who bought the book. And that's really important because especially when you find out who likes the book, because that's who you're really trying to find, trying to find the people that will buy the piece of work. So does that sort of give you that's sort of a yeah that was great, but it it leads me onto a question that I keep off wondering because like I'm a visual artist and at one I've made or I've I've uh, laid out and designed a number of books over my lifetime but I've never been able to find a publisher to publish them and then even if I did find a publisher like how how do these days like is self-publishing the right way to go should use professional presses and then even once you have a book published how do you actually get them to the the right people like they it's you know it seems like there are less brick and mortar stores so then you have to be on websites and then you have to get reviews done like i mean there's so you know basically it's like how what's what's your process that you have found that either and i'd like to hear even some some things that you've made some missteps some things that you did wrong about trying to get a, a book created published and then distributed or sold or however you're doing it like what's your methodology for that uh so my methodology is i spend almost all of my time marketing out to people who i think will like what i do and then bringing them into my community, whether that's Facebook or my mailing list, preferably my mailing list, and then indoctrinating them into why they should be a member of the community of our community, and then making them turning them from casual to rabid fan and brand ambassador for our work. All of our stuff is really direct to customer. We don't do we don't really make a lot of money even in Amazon. We make almost all of our money at either conventions or on Kickstarter where we have a direct connection to the customer themselves and we can talk and outreach to them and find out what they want. That is really the misstep that most people make is that they don't know who the customer is. Now, for instance, when you're selling into bookstores, 
you really have two customers, but the main customer is the bookstore or the library itself. In America, we have uh, over 110,000 libraries. So you can make a very good living as a publisher just catering to libraries. And libraries have a much different set of problems, challenges than bookstores do. Usually you will have to create a hardcover for libraries because libraries are all about keeping the books for a long time. They want the books. Uh, they need the books to be checked out by a lot of people. So you're going to be probably doing hardcover for libraries, whereas bookstores are trying to sell you know, a lot of books. So you're going to be probably doing a mass market books for bookstores, you know, they can sell for less than uh, $9.99 or less. So uh, really knowing who the audience is not uh, is not so because we go direct to customers, I know who the customer is. But I don't do any work really with bookstores or libraries or comic book shops. Uh, So I don't understand their needs nearly as well as direct to customer stuff. And our, all of our books, most of our books are designed direct with, with the direct to customer in mind. Um, we have a book called Monsters and Other Scary Shit, for instance, which doesn't have a title on the cover. And that would be murder for a bookstore. But for my needs, it's great. For, uh, for someone who's going to buy directly from me, people love that cover. But they're not just going to discover it at a bookstore. So really knowing who that customer is and what they what they want is and what they're going to respond to, because we so we do these anthologies, the monster anthology and the Cthulhu is hard to spell anthology. And that's partially because we want a testing ground for the the artists that are in the book and to see if uh, if we should publish their work. And uh, so we can actually test out who the best, most uh, popular artists are for wannabe press fans. And then those are the ones who we work with. So it really, for me, comes back to just knowing the audience so well that you can blindly make stuff, kind of, because you're not blindly making stuff because you're you're always bringing them into the process. Now, if you're going to try and find a publisher, then the then for you, the 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 first step is you need to know the bookstore and libraries because that's the publisher's needs. But you also need to know what the editors are looking for, uh, and what so the a lot of agents, for instance, will send out mandates, and editors will send out mandates to agents uh, about like what they're looking for. And so you need to know kind of like where the industry is moving so that you know what a specific editor is looking for, and every editor at every press is different. They all have different needs. They all have different likes. And it's important to know sort of what they're grokking to before you reach out to them. What about Kickstarter? I've looked at Kickstarter and Indiegogo and all those other kinds of things for years thinking about putting something on there. And I find the whole idea of relying directly on my network to support me to support this project very daunting and and quite scary uh, like it it feels like a very vulnerable sort of uh, thing to put yourself out there like that with the hope that people will support you having never done one um now you have a little bit more background in it a little bit more experience in it but doing it that first time getting over that hump of like relying on your network to to support your project is a very scary endeavor. Yes, it is. 
I mean, it's scary every time we launch. You know, we launch now a lot bigger than we used to, but it's scary every time that we do it. Um, important thing is that like it usually takes two to three months of buildup for to get the book out there. Um, you want to have a bunch of people in your audience that you already know will buy. So whether that's your personal network or your professional network or your fan network, you need to spend a lot of time talking to your audience and getting them excited for your book or project coming out. And uh, it might not work. Like you might do two months of buildup and then your project may fail, but then you'll have firsthand data. And that's the most powerful thing in any business is firsthand data, whether of a success or with a failure. I have people all the time that don't, that uh, fail their Kickstarters and then they come back and they launch smaller or they launch different or they launch in a different way that is uh, more interesting or they, they spend more time building their fandom or getting them excited or whatever it is, they are retooling based on the data that they receive in their initial campaign. So it is scary, but uh, you've got to launch to know where you stand. If you don't know where you stand, you can't grow from there. Right. Basically, if you don't ask the question, the answer is always no. Exactly. Now you, But you have all these other things. So the, tell me more about the creative... I'm so bad. I'm, you've you've overwhelmed me with stuff to think about. The your website with your tutorials and your classes. Sure. So the complete creative is all about you. Uh, making the best work of your life and sharing it with the world. Um, we have a bunch of epic blog posts, a bunch of free courses. We have a free Kickstarter course at thecompletecreative.com forward slash FKC. There's a free business course. You are so good at self-promotion, by the way. I just want to throw that out there. You you have constantly been very good with like citing titles and web addresses and everything. It's very nice. It's one of my big weaknesses. I, I don't do it at all. It took a long time. Uh, I mean, this is not, this is the work of a lifetime. So uh, it's, it's, it's hundreds of, of appearances and, and, and doing it wrong and, and trying to figure out how to do it better the next time. And also just making it so it flows into conversation naturally and, uh, and not doesn't feel jerky. But uh, you do it very well. Oh, thank you so much. It's, it's, it's something that I really work on. So I appreciate that. Uh, I need to work on it. I'm horrible at it. I, I like, I, it, I can sell your product, no problem at all, but being able to sell my own product, which, you know, in my case is fine art, your case is these, your comics and your graphic novels is very difficult. I would imagine like to be, to be selling something that you put so much passion into and all that. Is, is it hard or is it easier because because you're so passionate? Both. Um, I, so I ask myself two questions. Uh, uh, the two questions that they're, they're in my book, How to Build Your Creative Career. But um, the first question is, do you think you're a good or at least average person? Most people say yes to that. I've never met somebody who actually like was taking it seriously, who said, no, I think I'm a horrible person. Uh, most people most people at least say, well, yes, I, I, I can be a good person in the right situations. And the second question is, do you think the work that you do could change somebody's life even for a second, even if it's just distracting them from the horrible stuff that's going on in the world? 
And again, when someone's taking it seriously, I very rarely, if ever, hear anyone say no. Most people think that they're a good person and that the thing that they're doing can change lives at least a little bit, at least in a slightly positive way. And given those two factors, uh, you have no choice. You are morally obligated to tell as many people about it as possible because you want to change as many lives as possible. It's not a choice. It's an imperative. If you are a good person, you must tell people, you must try and change people's lives for the better. And I, uh, I believe that for my own work, uh, my work, I've, and, and also it becomes a lot easier when uh, you've, you've seen people's lives changed by the thing that you, that, that you do. So, you know, I actually have watched people change their entire companies for the better or like, or grown as a creator or, or just like. Uh, a book that I wrote uh, changed their perspective on life. And so I'm passionate about that change, even if I'm not passionate about the work. But the truth is that you, in order to have any any chance of breaking through, you have to love your product a hundred and crazy percent, because if you can't, then nobody else will. Indeed. And that is really a lot of what The Complete Creative is about. It's about having the mental toughness and resilience to keep going on even when you even when the world says you shouldn't it's about understanding that your self-worth is not tied to your success or your products it's about how to create better things and and how to sell them uh yes there's that component of selling that it has to be a part of any business but for me the the sales are a byproduct of running a business the right way they are not the reason they are just the, uh, the, the, the byproduct of, of how I run my business. I do the things that I do, and then money comes out at the end of it. But it's never the goal. The impact is the goal. Nice. Actually, that makes me think about, I generally have a question I ask most of my guests, which is basically, uh, how did you even get to the point in your life that you chose to go down this creative path? Like where you're parents and your or family members creative was it some teachers some relationship earlier in your life like how did you even get to the i want to not not necessarily be a writer but like but actually like be my own publisher and then make my own comics and all this kind of stuff like how did you get to that i grew up wanting to be an actor and then wanting to be a director and then wanting to be a camera operator and all of those things kind of fell by the wayside over time as it takes a lot of people to make all of that stuff. And then I finally got in a car accident in 2008, which left me in a neck brace for six months. And Ouch. all I could do was write. And I realized that as a writer, I could, I could shape a story without anyone else's help. And then I moved to Los Angeles, uh, pretty much right when I got married and then got my neck brace off. And I started a long journey of trying to be a TV and movie writer. And uh, that didn't work. And in 2010, my manager brought me uh, comics and said, have you ever thought of doing comics? And I fell in love with comics. The, so just you, the did, quality. you didn't even read comics as a child or anything? I did, uh, but I hadn't read them in maybe... 20 years, maybe okay. 15 years at that point. But I fell in love with indie comics and what you could do and the stories you could tell and that everything sort of felt uh, so fresh and alive. And I could make a comic, a world-class comic for so much less than a movie. 
Sure. And so I started making comics and then I started writing books and I got some publishing deals that didn't work out. They were, they published my work quite badly. And I said, Hey, I don't know if I can be a good publisher, but I can at least be a bad publisher. I can at least like miss deadlines. So I, I took all of my work back in house and I started publishing it myself in 2014. We launched wannabe press with our Kickstarter. And then we released our first slate early in 2015. Now, so you say you're the writer. So you have somebody else who does all the illustrations or do you do the illustrations yes. as well? I did draw a book called Gherkin Boy and the Dollar of Destiny, but I do not recommend anybody read that. I, uh, <laughs> uh, I, I hire out uh, almost all of my art. There's like 200 episodes almost of the complete creative going all the way back to when it was the business of art, interviews with top creators, people who are really on their game. And what really makes the, the show different is that, you know, I'm a six-figure author, a six-figure creator. I'm interviewing other six-figure creators. Plus, because I've been doing this for 200 episodes-ish, like I'm pretty good at interviewing at this point. And so it becomes a conversation of two people at the top of their game really discussing the creative and marketing process behind their work and one thing that i've learned is that no two creators uh, run their business the same way no two businesses run their work exactly the same so i had a, a woman named uh, naomi van uh, van doren on who's expert like branding fine art killer she just did a kickstarter and it raised, I think it raised like $30,000 her first time out. Her work is gorgeous. And she's like really great. She like has like a really cohesive brand. And then I've had fine artists on. I've had Hugo winning authors on. I've had Eisner winning writers and artists on. I've had filmmakers on. Uh, so uh, I really just want to dissect the things that work across industries and the things that are specific to different industries. And I always leave learning at least one new trick or tip or hack that I can use. Um, we just had one recently with uh, my friend, Dr. Deborah Holland, talking about burnout and anxiety and depression and how the- I was listening to that just before I got on here, actually. Yeah, that's, uh, that's probably my favorite recent one. It really gave me, like just listening to her talk really gave me a breakthrough of in my own uh, mental process. Uh, I had uh, Marv Wolfman on who created the Teen Titans and like tons of your favorite DC characters and Marvel characters as well. He created Blade. So all of these creators just- top of their game people who are trying to live a complete creative life and what that means to them. Your point about like through the entire conversation, if anybody who's listening takes just one new little thing, like that's almost verbatim the same thing that I say when I'm pitching, you know, conversations about this is that I don't believe any single person has all the keys to success. But I think that if you listen to a lot of different people talk about how they gain their whatever you want to call success, their accolades or their money or whatever, that if you take little bits from everybody, you can sort of reform all of their knowledge into some knowledge that's relevant to your life and your career. And then you can make take their successes and their failures or their, their issues or their problems and whatever, and make it so that you can either 
skip out or miss uh, some problems that you could potentially run into, or you could put yourself on a more direct path to some form of success for yourself. Like that's quite literally what this wise fool podcast is about as well, because none of us know everything, but all of us know something. Absolutely. And, you know, I find the biggest breakthroughs in my company come from things that I learned from other kinds of companies. So, uh, so it just has never been applied to a creative business or never in the, in the way that I specifically did. So I, I, I also, uh, try to read up on as many different kinds of thing as I possibly can, especially creative, because there's always something that another kind of creative uh, uh, industry does that is absolutely fascinating. And like, I've never seen done. So a lot of, cause I work in books and comics, uh, there's stuff that both, both sides do so well that the other side is never even heard of. And by kind of combining the best of both worlds, I've been able to, you know, make a pretty good living from both sides of that, that, that thing. Um, so yeah, and that's, that's sort of what I've been trying to do for the past decade. And especially since I started the complete creative is just like, how do these things function across industries? And how can you sort of amalgamate success from all of these disparate things? Another question that sort of keeps pestering me. You, you talked about like your networks and you're, you're meeting people and you're going to conventions and you're sending out your email list. Like, uh, let's say I'm a young artist or a young creative and I'm want to do this. Like, uh, these days it's not that easy to get emails. Uh, like how do you even start building an email list? I mean, cause it's easy to make, it's easier almost to make like Facebook groups or other things like this than it is to necessarily get people's emails specifically emails i mean you create an offer that is really compelling i do a lot of giveaways to for different fandoms that are that are relevant to my interests so mythology and monsters and uh, we're, we're we're filling things like once upon a time now for a giveaway that we're doing and um uh, uh we just finished lord of the rings and a couple of others so uh, I mean, you create a compelling offer and you bring it out to people and you uh, bring it to your network. So it's it's a lot easier if somebody else can vouch for you uh, to get emails and to get it working. But I mean, it's so easy to build an email list the wrong way and then you're uh, you don't have any traction in it. So the, it's really important to know who your audience is and what they're looking for. And then once you know that it becomes easier to send email and get email because you're like, hey, you know how you like this thing? Well, would you like a free book? Would you like a free like fine art wallpaper to get on my email list? Or there's all sorts of ways you can then entice somebody onto your email list. Even a sneaky way is to say you're making your book series is on haunted houses. You can create a, a blog about, uh, like, let's say that the the the, the main crux is there's a a girl buys a haunted house, and like then there's haunting stuff. Like it's pretty standard trope, but like you can make a website about haunted houses and the best haunted houses, and and create a a lead magnet about like the fifty spookiest haunted houses in America, and then use that as a lead magnet. It doesn't even have to do anything with your book. You just know that 
the people that like haunted houses will also like this book. So those are all like sort of, that's a back back end way without even using your own content to build an email list. Now, when you're doing your email list, do you use any of those softwares that are out there or do you, how do you do it? Cause I, will fully admit that years ago I tried to do an email list type thing and I ended up on a blacklist because I did it wrong and there are lots of ways to end up in spam filters and all this these days so like do you use some of the programs that are out there sure I use uh three I use MailChimp as my um main sort of intake and then I use uh send in blue is my uh sort of main autoresponder and then uh, because my email list is so big, uh, I, I have to find a cheaper solution for sending my emails. So I use a pl- program called MailBlast, which then sends my email to the 20,000 or so people that are on it every week. So um, those the combination of MailBlast, SendInBlue, and MailChimp. But honestly, like probably you'll be fine with MailChimp for a long time until you get 2000 emails. So uh, most people can just get by with MailChimp and MailChimp has the strictest um, spam filtery stuff. So it's got pretty good mail deliverability at the end of the day. Hmm. Yeah. Cause I mean, I, I always wonder about the, the, just the, the validity of email listing and email receiving emails these days. Cause there's just so many, I mean, I, I get, you know, hundreds of emails a day and it's just, and you know, probably 50% of them are just complete spam and for no reason. Like I don't know how these things got to me and I don't know why. And so I, it's one of those things like, I don't, it's an awkward situation. Cause like, I don't want to be annoyed by receiving spam email or sort of unwanted email. And so like, I feel awkward sending out email unless the person has absolutely said, yes, I want to know more about you. I would say that for every email, every person has one email that they are actually excited to get. For my wife, it's beta brand um, and a couple of others, but especially beta brand. She really, really, really loves Beta Brand and uh, a couple of other like Toad and Company uh, at, at things when they're doing sales, especially. So she does get a lot of spam, but she also gets excited to open certain emails as well. And the the, the mental switch that you really need there is you're, you're is you're looking for the people who are going to be as excited to open your email as my wife is to open the emails that she receives. So. I trim quite a bit my email list like every three months or so to try and get rid of the fat of people who aren't interested in receiving my emails. Yeah, because you but can follow I get a lot who, of, who click throughs and who does things. So like you, you can see basically who doesn't open them. Right, exactly. So yeah, well, Also, something like a lot of the listeners not, might not understand is, is like, like for you, you're reasonably, we'll call it a small business. Every time you send out an email, it costs you money. Like literally every email you send out costs you money. So you don't want to have a massive email list that doesn't give you a great return on investment because otherwise you're basically just throwing money down the drain. So like you do want to keep your email list nice and tight so that you're not wasting money. Yeah, I don't worry so much about that, but I will say that depending on the... So I have two businesses, right? Two real sides to my business. The first has 20,000 emails on it. The other one has 2,000 emails. And I make just as much money 
uh, from my 2000 email list is my 20,000 email list because on one side, my average spend is $100. And on the other side, my average spend is about $20. So I need to have, in fact, the majority of my business on my complete creative side comes from a list of about 300 people. So I make, I, I run my whole business roughly from like three, 400 people on that side of the business that pay for everything that I do from that side of the business. So you don't need a big email list to make a big impact, but you do need an, an email list to make an impact because that is still where people are looking to buy things. It won't give you amazing engagement. Uh, it won't like make you feel good all the time because you'll send a, an email to uh, to a bunch of people and get no replies. But uh, when you when it's time to send that buying email, like that is still where people go to buy, and that's really what I care about. Uh, the the uh, I'll tell you that very few of the people that actually engage regularly on my posts are the buyers who actually buy the books. So. I care about my email because that is where those people go to find the books that I make to buy. This has been great fun. Thank you very much for giving me, you know, an hour of your time. Thank you for having me. I look forward to. I look forward to hearing it when it comes out. Thank you all for your support of the Wise Fool Patreon account. If you've not become part of our network, by becoming a supporter, you receive the opportunity to help in the choosing of upcoming guests, cities that I should visit, and also you can give me questions that you would like me to ask future guests. You can find us and support us at Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash the wise fool, all one word. If you enjoy the podcast, I would appreciate a five star rating and please tell your friends to listen and subscribe also. You can subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Pandora, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. One of my many weaknesses that has become glaringly obvious to me through my insights from my guests is that my lack of professionalism in the business practices when it comes to my personal artwork. So I've become putting my work on sale on SachiArt.com. You can find my artwork available for purchase at SachiArt.com. A-A-T-C-H-I-A-R-T dot com slash Matthew Doles, M-A-T-T-H-E-W-D-O-L-S. Thank you. Thank you.